SMJ Radio. I am the host, Monty Oberg, as always. Today I'm joined by James Miner of Sasaki uh, to talk about urban agriculture and how that can be integrated into some major cities around the U.S., Boston, New York, Los Angeles, like that, hopefully. Um, it's pretty cool. The reason I'm having him on the show is he did a TED Talk that I saw, and I reached out to him, and he was kind enough to... Uh, Kind enough to be on. So, James, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Thanks for having me. I'm yeah, glad to be here. Yeah. So, for those listening who don't know who you are, can you just uh, fill us in on what your background is? Yeah, sure. So, uh, my name's James Miner, and I'm a managing principal at Sasaki, which is an inter- interdisciplinary design firm which works across the world. Uh, my primary role at the firm is to oversee the planning and urban design discipline, and I also have a role in the executive committee, which I chair. Cool. So, to get to the reason why you're on the show is you did a TED Talk. Um, I think it's from December of yeah December? November, November last year. Yep, November of last year, and it's about 15 minutes long. I highly recommend anybody listening to this go check it out. I thought it was really interesting about urban agriculture and where we get our food and uh, and a bunch of stuff that I, if I tried to repeat it now, I wouldn't do it justice. Um, and we're not going to do a rundown of exactly what was in that right, uh, right. TED Talk because uh, you can go watch it for yourself and we don't want to repeat any content. Um, but it is if you haven't seen it, you do need to know kind of what it's about to understand what we're talking about in this episode. So, James, can you just give us, a, I guess, an abbreviated version? Sure. Well, first of all, thanks for watching it. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's 15 minutes and not everybody has 15 minutes to sit and watch somebody else talk. But... It, it may be helpful to, to start by explaining why it is I even did the TED Talk and yeah. why I chose food as the topic, mm-hmm. um, because, quite frankly, a lot of my colleagues uh, asked me that question. So how did you, yeah. when did you become such a food expert? Um, which, by the way, I'm not. But, well, you sound like it. Yeah, you well, that's, uh, you get a lot of training before you do a TED Talk, so you kind of have to sound yeah. that way uh, to be credible. But uh, And I have learned a lot, to be, to be honest and fair, and... Uh, what I've seen is that this is a this is a topic around food, food systems, how we get our food, uh, how we feed our cities, that a lot more people are talking about now than certainly ever before, ever that certainly since I've been working as an urban planner, uh, which is in some ways surprising because when you think about the field of planning and urban design and the way that we uh, think about cities today, there's a lot of people moving into cities, uh, coming back into the cities. It's surprising that we don't or haven't really thought about how we source our food. And I say that because we think about a lot of other things in a very comprehensive way, whether it be uh, water, um, we think about transportation, uh, climate change. All of these big systems are at play, and, and our job in the industry is to think about the systems and make sure they're functioning and optimize them and, and make sure that uh, the communities that we're planning are working and uh, thinking towards the future in terms of sustainability. But food has never been part of that. I, Ten years ago, uh, we were certainly talking about water, we were talking about sea level rise, talking about a lot of good stuff, but nobody was talking about food. So it's taken for granted. And I think one of the reasons that the world has woken up to this is that there's a tremendous amount of general interest in food in a way today that hasn't been present in the past. And uh, that goes to like what you see on TV from all of the Food Network and chef shows, cooking shows, uh, just to what's driving urban development now. And food is becoming one of those things from 
uh, a market standpoint that is uh, catalyzing development in cities and uh, in other places in a really interesting way. So food has become um, much more in demand. And as people are aware of where their food is coming from and the quality of that food, their willingness to spend more on food uh, has become, um, you know, really evident. Uh, so much so that I saw one study that uh, said that for the first time in history, at least since it's been measured, uh, in 2015, people spent more money on restaurants in the U.S. than they did at the grocery store. That's pretty telling. So people are going out and they're going to restaurants. Why are they doing this? Uh, if you think about traditional development and retail, right, as one of the main drivers, and I will get to the TED Talk in a yeah, moment, no, but I feel no. like this is an important setup no, for a lot of them. <laughs> if you think about uh, what drives development, we think about retail and street presence and, and life on the street and the kinds of uses that would traditionally fill the shops that we're trying to uh, populate to give cities life. Some of those don't really exist today in the way that they used to. Uh, a long time ago, I worked at Tower Records, right? Mm -hmm. and it used to be a place that people went, not just to buy records, but it was part of the social ex uh, environment. Exactly. Yeah. And you went to talk to other people and interact and learn about music and, uh, and find people who are of like mind, right? And you might bump into somebody, whether you were into jazz, classical, hip-hop, rap, whatever, uh, that was part of your identity and that was a social experience. Uh, music is a, is a good example of, of change because that doesn't happen anymore. Tower Records doesn't exist. Uh, you don't go to the record store. You go online. Right? Same thing for a lot of other things that we buy, clothing, for example, and I'm a big fan of online shopping for that. I hate shopping, uh, but... Uh, that retail experience now is getting more and more limited to what do you actually have to visit in terms of a brick and mortar location uh, from a retail or consumer experience. And guess what? Restaurants are one of those things that will never change. You can't eat your computer. Right? Yeah. You, can't, you, just can't. you can order online. You can order. You can order online. That's true. And you can have groceries delivered. But uh, let's be honest. There is a an inherent social experience to food that is part of who we are uh, instinctively as people, right? Every time you want to celebrate something, you celebrate around food. Anytime you want to gather with friends, you gather around food. If you want to get people to come to a meeting, you bring food Free to the lunch, meeting. Yeah. So, so food will always have that. That will never change, and I think that's something that people are really starting to embrace in really new and interesting ways. So there's an awareness. There's a demand and there's an awareness. And that wasn't in place 10, 15 years ago. But for me, uh, the real reason that I started to think about food and, and thought about doing a TED Talk and getting out there is that uh, we've done work, as I mentioned, all around the world and across the country uh, where this is starting to become a topic. So five years ago, uh, right at the tail end of the recession, the federal government released a program for uh, these regional planning projects for sustainable development in U.S. cities. And I think there are 40, 45 different cities that, uh, or regions that got funding from the federal government, which was a collaboration amongst the uh, Department of Transportation, the HUD, and the EPA. And it was the first time, really, those three organizations at the federal level had collaborated to think about the impacts of different federal programs on the evolution of our cities. And in particular, the DOT uh, was a big one because we have historically, uh, ever since the Federal Interstate Highway Act, 
built a lot of roads, right? And you might remember during the recession, one of the ways that we tried to find our way out of it was to fix, repair, uh, add new infrastructure to create construction jobs and you know, building new roads, uh, fixing our bridges and uh, expanding lane miles on the highway. But the impact of those decisions, and that was the impetus for this plan, was to figure out what's that doing for our city. So as we're adding more roads, we're making it easier for people to get out of the city. Contrary to what we think people want to do now, which is live in the city, we're seeing a lot of cities, particularly in the middle of the country, where uh, the expansive infrastructure just allows sprawl to happen. In fact, encourages it, really, because we're, we're putting our federal tax dollars into uh, programs that, that take life away from the city. And it also has an impact on social equity relative to affordable housing and who gets left behind in these cities. If you look at a place like Cleveland, where we also did a regional plan, uh, tremendous amounts of infrastructure in that city going unused and falling into disrepair. And the communities that are left behind are now living in places that uh, there aren't enough, there's not enough tax resources to maintain and upkeep. So um, there's a huge social equity challenge there. But in Iowa, one of the things that I found most striking, and having not spent a whole lot of time there before we started doing the regional plan around Des Moines, uh, of course, the first thing that you're struck with when you go to Iowa is the vast amount of agricultural land that surrounds you. And as we were working with the community, trying to understand what values were important to them as they were looking into the long-term future, 2040, 2050, what do they want their community to look like, a significant portion of the population was talking about better access to local food. And that was my sort of epiphany, moment of awakening to this issue around uh, food and and food planning, because it seemed contrary to what I had observed. You know, how could you be in one of the richest agricultural areas of the country and not have access to local food? And the reason, of course, is that what is going on, what's being grown in Iowa has very little to do with who lives in Iowa, has everything to do with our national food system and the way that we've organized it at the industrial scale to feed the nation. And that includes uh, a lot of monocultures and really large-scale industrial farms and a robust distribution system so that we get certain crops from different places in the country. And you may be in Iowa but not have access to 75% of your diet, right? more than 80% of their food is imported in Iowa, which, you know, just doesn't seem right. So, And that's because they're growing crops like corn. Exactly. And goes to feed. Corn and soybeans. That's yeah. basically it. I mean, 90%. It feeds the pigs and cows and, and other stuff. Exactly like right. You know, so a very small portion of that corn and soybean goes to feeding people. A lot of it's going to feeding um, cattle, swine, whatever it is. And, and those are also major exports from Iowa as well. But it has nothing to do with the people, right? It has everything to do with the system of agriculture. So... I really figured that this was uh, something that we were going to be hearing a lot more about. And in fact, that is exactly what's happened. So uh, just last year, maybe it's been two years, uh, the EPA released a program uh, under Barack Obama for trying to add some technical assistance to communities who want to improve access to local foods, called Local Places Local Foods. And uh, we've since been... uh, hired to do the work for the EPA in 12 communities and in the larger urban areas and and they're spread across the country from I have a colleague in Palmer, Alaska right now doing work in Honolulu uh, all the way across to um, the East Coast as well. So we're definitely seeing this trend and uh, I've 
because there's few people in our line of business who are actually talking about this, I've taken it upon myself to learn as much as I can, understand the problem as much as I can, because I do believe uh, within the very near future, we're going to be thinking about food systems the way we think about transportation systems. We as planners and urban designers, architects, civil engineers are going to be designing food systems the way we design road systems or infrastructure systems. It's just going to happen. We've got to be smart about this. And if we don't do it, we have a major sustainability problem on our hand. That's the other side of this. Uh, as I started to investigate more into how our nation's food system works, uh, I really did begin to understand it as a resource problem as well, not just in terms of how much food we can produce, but the kinds of resources that go into producing food, most importantly, water. And being a native Californian, uh, I turned my attention uh, as part of my own research to what's going on in California. And I found some pretty shocking statistics. This, to me, like when I watched the TED Talk, for me personally, was the most interesting thing about how the California drought that they're having right now plays into the food, where our food is being produced. Because I didn't realize, I knew, I knew California had a large agriculture system, but I yep. didn't realize that California is basically feeding the nation. Yeah, in many ways it is, right? And, and, and many, many crops that we all eat on a daily basis are coming from California. And many of the most perishable things that we eat, like lettuce, for example, leaf, leafy greens, cucumbers, tomatoes, uh, a lot of that's coming from California. And not only is it water intensive, but it takes a lot of energy to transport it because you've got to keep it cold and you've got to ship it across the country. And that takes a lot of energy. So again, on the sustainability side, when you start to add all that up, the cost to the environment is huge. The monetary cost, we're, we're subsidizing this huge uh, system that we have. And we're, the only way we're able to do that is by the scale at which these, uh, uh, the produce and, and other food that we eat is being, is being grown. Uh, you mentioned the drought in California, and you know it's it's been an ongoing crisis for them. This is a multi-year event, uh, and it, it, as much as we look at how much rainfall has occurred, we also are now looking at what groundwater recharge is going to take. And we understand that in California, in particular, based on the way that we've been using water, it's going to take many many years to recover the natural systems that have been this nature's store of water for the state. And this knee-jerk reaction is to think, well, California has got a huge population and we've got to find ways to conserve water. And in fact, there are a lot of measures being put in place in California to conserve water use uh, for residential purposes. But the reality is that the consumption of water in California is 80% for agriculture, only 10% for residential. I'm not saying we shouldn't you know, not water lawns or put in artificial lawns. That's all good. You know, we don't need a lot of those things that we're using water for. But the biggest impact or bang for the buck in California relative to the drought will be on agriculture and finding ways to be smarter about the way we use water. People are drilling deeper and deeper wells to access groundwater to uh, feed the agricultural industry in California. So I, I did some research and I uh, looked at the Department of Agriculture's website and just looked at all of the various crops and, you know, trying to, s to quantify all of that and seeing, you know, some pretty alarming statistics, but really over 90% of all of the, the crops that I mentioned earlier, you know, whether it's lettuce, tomatoes, cucumbers, they're all coming from California. And, and they're all not like 90% water. And they're all, well, they're all like 90 or 95% water, yeah. and, you know, that's... So when you begin to add all that up and just say, okay, based on the water 
uh, mass alone, the water that's embedded within the crops that are being exported from California. And I got the export statistics to figure out just how much is going out of California. And add all that up, um, and this was in, in the TED Talk, but it was the thing that really stuck with me when I, when I figured this all out. Uh, if you took a thousand of the largest water trucks that they make and filled them up with water every day in California and drove them across the country, that's the equivalent in terms of the water that's being just sent away. And that's just what's in the food. That's not what's actually required to grow all of that. And you can imagine it's a factor of uh, you know tens, if not hundreds, uh, added to that just to grow what's being produced in California. So it doesn't make sense. But we don't really have an answer, or we haven't had an answer until recently. And I think where we're heading with all this is not a wholesale change. You know, there are there are very very good reasons why we grow the crops that we grow in California uh, because of the climate conditions. You know, they're unique. They're uh, they're just right for those kinds of crops. But there are some. You know, it's going to be very hard. For example, uh, if we think about almonds. We're not going to be growing almond trees on rooftops anytime soon. That's not going to really change. But there are crops that you can grow on rooftops or in hydroponic greenhouses that can, uh, well, if you think about it like uh, in your investment portfolio, what's the number one piece of advice everybody gets? It's diversify, right? Mm-hmm. So if we're investing in our future and we all must eat, therefore, we should really think about a diverse approach to how we produce the food that we, that we all require. So what's become really interesting now following on the identification of the problem and the magnitude of the problem is, well, what are the solutions? What, what do we do about this? Uh, and I've come to know a variety of people in kind of startups or emerging uh, industries who are doing some really creative things around food production that I think offer an alternative to feeding our cities going forward. And that's becoming now part of our work that we're doing with the EPA and also in urban districts as we're thinking about redevelopment of some major segments of a city or new development adjacent to a city. How can we integrate food and food production in a way that's going to basically have no net gain on food demand or or taxation on the system that we already have in place uh, to try and squeeze more out of California and more out of Iowa? and other places, and also provide a real health benefit, which is another very important side of this. There's a lot of overlap between what we do in urban planning and public health, Mm -hmm. and people will talk about walkable cities, uh, and that's very important. But there's also these food deserts all across the country where uh, a food desert is defined as a place where a significant portion of the population has lower than average income and little or no access to fresh food. So what, what is a, you know, a place off the top of your head that would be an example? Of Los Angeles. Los Angeles? Los Angeles, that yeah. That is not something that yeah. I, would, I would think like <laughs> uh, somewhere in the middle of Nebraska. Well, like. you know, another great one, just if you, if you want to look at, you know, Google Earth Maps, to, to, you could think, you could see a Los Angeles, vast, sprawling area, yeah. um, and it kind of makes sense, right? So you have these poor neighborhoods that don't have grocery stores, certainly don't have farmer's markets. Basically, they have convenience stores and fast food. Mm-hmm. That's it. People, and they don't have cars. So what are you left with? Some really unhealthy choices. Just from a cost perspective alone, uh, and I think part of the reason the federal government is so interested in looking at this problem now, is that that's, it's bad for people's health, which is then bad for our economy, because it costs a lot to care for 
you know, people who have health problems related to obesity. And of course, we've seen obesity continue to rise in this country, and that's one of the big reasons is part of its education, but a lot of its access, and people just don't have access to healthy food. Philadelphia has many neighborhoods that are considered to be food deserts, and if you look at a regional map of Philadelphia, the land has tremendous capacity to grow food. Yeah, because I would think of... But they don't. I would think of Pennsylvania as an agriculture state. Absolutely. But uh, it's just not done that way because of, again, climate reasons, seasonality, and uh, the way that we've set up our national food system, it doesn't play. So there's actually an online mapping tool that's available. I forget the uh, the website, uh, but you can go online and, and search for it, and you can see a map of all these food deserts. And one of the things I did for the TED Talk was to look at, by county, uh, which counties across the country have a significant number of these food deserts, and then overlay that with where food is produced. And my expectation going into that was, well, there's going to be sort of a, a um, you know, a correlation in terms of the fact that there should be where there's food produced there shouldn't be any food deserts and when there's not food produced that's where you'd expect to see food deserts and it actually has no correlation whatsoever uh, so there's tons of overlap in some of the most agriculturally productive counties within the u.s there are also some of the densest uh, gathering of food deserts so you say this is this is crazy uh, from a systems planning perspective, that doesn't make any sense, and we we ought to start looking at that. So, how are we gonna how are we gonna fix this? How we gonna solve it? Yeah, it's not it's not gonna be a simple issue. And I mean, the, to me, when you talk about how a lot of so much of the the food that we eat, the agricultural products that we eat that come from California, it really doesn't make any sense if you know, we, we're in Boston right now. It doesn't make sense to drive truck from California <clears throat> to Boston full of tomatoes and lettuce and stuff. Yeah. When I think there's got to be a better way where we could grow it more locally. And I realize that yes, there are some local farms that you can get to to buy your to buy your produce or your, or your meats. But the issue right now is you kind of have to pay a premium for that, which you can do that if you can afford that. But the majority of people <clears throat> can't necessarily afford that. So how do we how do we take this this problem? How do we take agriculture, put it in an urban design, and create a model or a system where it is sustainable and you don't have to pay that premium and you're getting fresh produce and you're getting fresh meat or whatever it is that's from your local community or more local community? Yeah. Well, uh, first I would say that the fact that people are willing to pay a premium for this, for locally grown food, is a good sign. It's not going to solve the food desert problem, but it's a good sign that people care right that's a that's a good market indicator of demand i think that's important because the way to change the model is that it's going to have to make business sense first the private sector is going to have to get involved in a way that's going to disrupt the system it's not going to happen through public channels of the federal government when there's good economic reason to do something things generally happen so that's that's the good side of it, right? It's not solving all the equity and, and food desert challenges. So I believe that's coming. And that's, again, one of the reasons why I think we have to be ready for this and we have to be smart about it. So if there's demand and people are willing to pay a premium, theoretically, we should be able to figure out to get at scale an alternative solution. And scale is really the challenge and the opportunity at the same time. We're not going to solve this through farmer's markets. They're great. 
and it's great about it's creating awareness, it's creating buzz, it adds life to an area. That's not a scalable solution that's going to provide access to locally sourced food year-round in a way that's going to feed an entire urban population. But it's still a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's just not going to solve yeah. the problem. <laughs> so <laughs> take, about, take about tomatoes, for example. Um, one of the uh, really interesting groups that I came across was a company called Backyard Farms, which has been around for a while. In fact, I've been buying their product at Whole Foods, just didn't know anything about it. Backyard Farms was founded in Maine. So it's a indoor hydroponic greenhouse, very large scale. I think in total there's over 20 acres of greenhouses. But it was a really important proof of concept for the things that we're talking about because they grow fresh, vine-ripened tomatoes year-round and supply the Northeast with that product in a really much more sustainable way than uh, trying to get something from California. Or quite honestly, even in California, if you think about tomatoes, they don't grow year-round. So if you go into an Italian restaurant in the North End, <laughs> don't order a caprese salad in February, right? Yeah. Or historically, you couldn't. Mm -hmm. uh, because the tomatoes aren't going to be good. And tomatoes are, are one of those, it's a fruit, one of those fruits that uh, actually really matters when it's picked. You know, and because we're shipping things a long distance, we tend to pick things that are not quite ripe, and they get ripe in the in the process of arriving to you. But that changes the chemical structure of you these foods. You can tell instantly. You can tell. You're eating a tomato that's you can tell from Stop and Shop versus yeah. a tomato that you grew yourself. It, exactly. Again, so think about it from a demand business perspective. That matters. It matters, and people will pay a premium for it. But it also matters from a health perspective. So that's a that. That was one that uh, Paul Selu, who founded Backyard Farms, uh, picked because he knew, he knew it mattered. He knew it was obvious and people would be able to tell. And so you can go and buy really nice little craft boxes of Backyard Farms tomatoes at Whole Foods today. And you've been able to do that for years. And they, they're competitive market price and they're locally sourced. And it's, it's great. And the, the hydroponic greenhouse technology continues to improve. It's important, I think, uh, as one of the solutions that we need to look at because it uses very little water. It recycles the water. It doesn't use any soil, which means it can be placed on rooftops, right? If you think about rooftop gardens, they're great. But if you're just putting a farm on a roof, you typically see those in old industrial buildings that have uh, been built in the past when there were different structural load requirements. They were overbuilt for what they did. Uh, and those things have come down and down as we continue to cut costs on how we build things. So the hydroponic greenhouse technology can be extremely productive per square foot compared to conventional farming and it uses less resources and it weighs less and they can um, use the sun's power most of the time and supplement with LED lighting. Again, that, that continues to improve so the energy cost goes down. And then not to mention the transportation costs because they can be located closer to where the point of sale is going to be. Uh, the same concept is now being applied to lettuce and leafy greens just outside of Boston. Little Leaf Farms is uh, just begun its operation out at Devon's, and this is the same gentleman who started uh, Backyard Farms, Paul Selyu, and he has a much smaller scale facility, but his goal is a proof of concept where you can say, okay, we have a Boston market. We don't need to be in Boston, but immediately adjacent to, with good access to the road networks. And we can grow at scale uh, lettuce and leafy greens in a controlled environment, a hydroponic greenhouse, where you can, uh, it's like a giant, if you imagine a giant, very slow moving conveyor belt of lettuce in a, in, a, in a warehouse. And it moves kind of inch by inch across the floor. 
and by the time it's fully grown, say a month, uh, it falls onto another conveyor belt and is cut and bagged and ready to deliver. And that system allows you to harvest every day of the year. And it's ready to go, and it just literally came from the farm yesterday. And his vision for the future in thinking about, well, does this work in Boston, is where else can it work? And where, how else can we start to locate these kinds of facilities near ur major urban areas? And what else can we grow? Again, with the goal of diversifying our portfolio of how we produce and receive the food that we eat. And I think that's got real legs. And we can start to think about now, when we look at a city and its population, its demand for food, what kinds of facilities we ought to be locating around our cities to then provide food security for the city as well as food access for places that suffer from food deserts. That, I think, starts to get to scale. It's not going to take everything out of California and put it somewhere else, but it's going to make the burden on California much, much less. Cool. <laughs> that, that makes way more sense than the... I'm sure if you Google a picture of like eco city or some like dream city where like agriculture and urban design are fully integrated, you're going to get this awesome picture of like a farm running down the street. Yeah, which yes. might not which <laughs> be great, but it's definitely not realistic, especially as, just from like for me, I would think from a weather standpoint. Yeah. Boston, like, it'd be cold in winter. Well, look, this is a uh, this is something that I've also learned about. I mean, we. If you look at the work that we had started doing in this area and some of our work abroad and you know, trying to rethink the public realm and, you know, you can see some of the renderings we did and you'll see just exactly what you described. It's like a mashup of everything agriculturally related from green walls to community gardens to rooftop gardens to vertical farms to greenhouses. And, okay, that's making a point, right, which is to say, hey, let's think about the public realm differently. So you can imagine a street section that instead of having lawn panels, it has, you know, herbs or food being grown. And there's actually uh, a really interesting group in L.A. that's trying to do this. And if anyone's into TED Talks, look at Ron Finley, Green Grounds, L.A., kind of the gorilla gardener, uh, gangster gardener, he's called himself. Uh, he was trying to educate everybody about what it takes to grow your own food. And he just took over unused pieces of land within public rights of way and started planting stuff and getting people to come out and take care of it. It's beautiful. It's awesome. But it's not, it's not scalable and it does require a lot of maintenance. And that's the thing that cities really can't afford to do, right? If you design these elaborate systems, um, they're great if you have caretakers in the community to do that, but it's more demonstration, right? Community gardens, kind of the same thing. Um, they're awesome. We should build more of them. Uh, for everyone who's participated in one, you know what a great kind of gathering spot that is and um, how nice it is to have a plot of land that you can grow food on for your family. Um, but they require some maintenance too, and they look great, like right now, July, August, you know, the harvest time. They're looking fantastic. They look really bad in February. <laughs> yeah, in the winter, they look terrible. It's like just like, you know, derelict and dangerous. Yeah, so, you know, developers aren't, like, begging to put community gardens on their property as a way to catalyze future development. Uh, but we get, you know, what the importance of that is. Vertical farms, 
a lot of debate about these. There's some large-scale ones being built in, in, in the East Coast. You'll see them more in, um, you know, underutilized or vacant industrial areas where you have warehouses. Mm-hmm. They don't require natural light. Uh, they, you know, can be done all with LEDs and very little staff. And uh, so there's there's some people who prescribe to that model and think that that's going to work, but I think they haven't really penciled out financially, as far as I can tell. Uh, so that's a challenge. And also, we're not making new kind of vacant buildings. So when you think about future development, is a vertical farm something that you would be willing to build in exchange for rentable space? Probably not. Uh, so that, I think, for us, as we think about new developments and the work that we do, is not something we're typically recommending beyond a demonstration kind of scale. You might see them... Adjacent to parking garages, uh, I've seen examples of that being built where you're just trying to screen a parking garage and it can be a very attractive use and, yeah. and, and make a statement for a community. But again, if you have an alternative where that can be rentable square footage, chances are you're not going to build a vertical yeah. farm. Uh, we've also seen a number of groups starting to grow things in recycled containers. And Freight Farms in Boston is one of the groups that's probably most known nationally, uh, even though it's still fairly in startup mode. And again, I, I just asked the question about scale on that one. Uh, they can be great for individual users. A restaurant, you could have your own container in the back uh, growing everything you need to make your salads and herbs and whatnot. And those are kind of cool because they're programmable, so you can run everything with a smartphone. You literally never have to go into the thing until it's time to harvest. And you can control precisely for the crops that you're growing, amount of water, temperature, heat, humidity, and whatever it is. Um, those you know institutional users, hospitals, others. So there's a there's a market for that, but I don't think it's going to get us to scale. So I mentioned it before. I'll come back to it. The reason that I think the hydroponic greenhouse technology is so attractive for cities, you can do a couple things. We can we can think about locating larger facilities at the edges of our cities uh, to grow a lot of the crops that we're spending a lot of time and resources shipping from California and other places across the country. But we can also because of uh, the way that the greenhouses are constructed, the lightness of the structure, the, the reduced water use, the, no need for soil. Um, we can think about putting those in places in or on buildings that we can't rent out, right? So every building's got a roof. At some point, you get to the top of the building, you've got mechanicals, they can coexist with that. And you can imagine... Uh, people who are maintaining and operating these facilities across rooftops in a city. So they can even get some income. The the owner of the building could get some income from leasing out now the rooftop for agricultural production. Yeah, it's not going to be the same as if it's a penthouse unit or uh, an office, but you're taking space that was otherwise not Not generating any revenue to generating some revenue, even if it's marginal, not using a whole lot of resources, not causing additional cost in terms of structural load to build the building. And we're also now thinking about, well, how many rooftops do we have? How big can these be? I mean, I've thought about it. Like, hey, I might start to partner up with some of these guys because if I had 100 rooftops in Boston, I could produce a lot of food. And I know there's a demand for it. And I think there's real change coming in that regard. So not everybody's on board yet. Yeah. By the way, that was gonna. That kind of leads to my a question I want to ask, which are everything you said to me sounds good and great. I'm like, yeah, let's go. But there's always criticism to every plan. And what are some of the what if any are some criticisms you've heard of what you've just explained? Because like regardless of whether they're 
legit or not because there have to be some. Yeah, well, I, so I don't know how legit they are, and I and I'm not uh, haven't spent the time to actually do the economic financial analysis. Everybody's just wondering: does this really pencil out? And it's going to take somebody uh, taking a risk to give it a try, right? That's always like who's going to be first. It's really hard in every every idea that someone has. It's hard to tell. The greatest ideas people have often first feel like maybe the worst because I think we all think the same way. So this seems really like a great idea, but if it's so great, why hasn't anyone done it before? Mm-hmm. Maybe there's a reason, yeah. and maybe I just shouldn't even do it. That seems crazy. Yeah. So it takes a certain personality to just go to for just it. Go for it. Uh, you know, I think we in our industry can just continue to look for opportunities to push that agenda forward. I'm working in Portland, Oregon right now, and our client, who's very enlightened in this regard, Portland's a huge foodie scene. I mean, that food in Portland will blow your mind, um, not only because it's it's they've got really great chefs, but because they have access to really fresh and amazing food. Um, and we have a client in Portland where we're doing a 33-acre redevelopment uh, site, four to five million square feet of, of new development on an uh, industrial area. And we're looking at this seriously. And I'm trying to find ways for us to integrate the idea of food production into our project in a financially viable way. Of course, that's going to be the thing. Yeah. And if we could start to see that, if we could start to find partners who, hey, wait a second, you want to do a proof of concept out there where we know people are going to care, even though I mean, you got to go to Portland, they don't have to grow their own food on rooftops. It really, it's different from the Northeast because they've got tremendous uh, resources in terms of agriculture already on the ground there. But uh, because it's a population that cares, I think you could do it. And the Northeast, this is a no-brainer. Think about New York. Uh, it's impossible time. Possible it happens. It's very difficult to get trucks in and out of that city to make yeah. that city run. I mean, you. It's, that's an impressive uh, choreography in terms of what happens in the middle of the night to get mm-hmm. stuff in and out of that city. Uh, what if you didn't eat trucks? Yeah, it's just there. It's just there. And you can deliver stuff by bike or whatever. It's just, it's right there. Um, I, I, I can't imagine this won't happen. It's just when, will it? It's just when. Yeah. It's just when. And, you know, have I got it right on the technology? Well, of what's out there, I think this is the one that's got the most legs. Um, it's something I continue to learn more about. Uh, there's a number of groups looking at it. Uh, we know the demand is continuing to increase. There's a multitude of s- websites today where if you want to, you can have a connection to your farmers, right? So you can, uh, whether it's a CSA or just locally sourcing your meats or other produce, you can go out and do that now. People are doing it. And I think if somebody knew that they could buy food that was grown in their city, they would do it. I think there would be huge demand for it. Even if even if the first pass at this is similar to what we're seeing now, which is, yeah, maybe it comes at a premium. Um, and that's not atypical, right? The first iPhone was not for everybody. Yeah. Now everybody's got one, but uh, and again, that's okay. But that change has to make economic sense for it to happen. Yeah, 
That's the biggest criticism. So we're just waiting for someone to make it happen. Yeah. But I think we can just continue to recommend uh, recommend the options and, and be really smart about what's out there and what's mm-hmm. going on. Uh, get the development community on board with this. Get them excited about it. And, you know, that's where the money is. It's not in consulting. Yeah. <laughs> it's no. not with us. But, yeah, you're right. At the end of the day, it's the private sector businesses have to look at this and be like, is this viable? Can we make money off it? Because they can make money off it. Yeah, they'll do. They don't care. They'll yeah, do and by the way, that is not a political statement whatsoever. Uh, I think fast. the government has a huge role to play in yeah. all of this in terms of providing incentives and guiding policy, and I think we can't do it without that. But unless the business community is uh, actively on board, change is really hard. Yeah. But with that, uh, we're uh, we're going to wrap up. We're running out of time. So James, thank you very much. This has been uh, really, really interesting, super, super insightful. I want to start growing my own food now. Um, and you should. I should, yeah. Uh, I do have a, a garden in my backyard, but it's maintained by someone on a different uh, apartment level. Maybe I'll get like a tomato plant. Start small. <laughs> Cherry tomatoes, they're just like, they're like candy. Well, you should. Like, I mean, this is where it all starts. You should You should see what it takes to grow your own food. Yeah. I think, and everybody should do that. And uh you know the the reasons for having locally sourced food will become more abundant to everybody. Yeah. But with that, um, thank you very much. If uh, if anybody's listening to this and they want to uh, they want to learn more information from from you, where should they uh, where should they go? You can go to our website uh, www.sasaki.com and you'll find all of my contact information right on there. And yeah, feel free to shoot me an email, give me a call, whatever it is. Happy to uh, continue a dialogue with anyone who's interested to help take this to the next level. Yeah, and just so just so we say it outright, for anybody who's interested in now going and watching that TED talk that James did, if you just search James Meyer uh, on on YouTube, it'll come up, and uh, we'll we'll post the link to it on uh, on our podcast page to just make it easier. Uh, but for now, for all things PSMJ, make sure to follow us on Twitter at PSMJ underscore resources. Look us up on Facebook uh, at PSMJ resources. Uh, but for now, thanks for everything. Bye.